0: This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. We're going to continue the series that I have begun. I can't remember when I began. Uh, From uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. Um, We are actually at chapter three verse four we'll get there in just a moment, but I do want to uh, set the stage for the qualifications that we're looking at. Uh, all of us, I assume are either in vocational ministry or anticipating uh, entering vocational ministry and specifically some role as a pastor and Paul's qualifications that he spells out here in first Timothy, therefore, Uh, essential for us, and so we're rehearsing those to remind ourselves of these qualifications and in the anticipation that the Spirit of God would use it uh, in our own lives to challenge us about how well we're measuring up and to encourage us to pursue these qualifications in our life for ministry. We'll begin with the number one on the first page then. And then we'll jump to page 8 after we get uh, through the introduction. So let's begin there. I say, Paul writes to Timothy and the churches in Ephesus following his release from his first Roman imprisonment. Of course, Luke ends his account of the spreading of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome with Paul's first Roman imprisonment recorded in chapter 28. He simply stops his account of that spreading of the gospel and Paul's ministry in the last half, of course, of the book of Acts. But we know from the pastoral epistles that Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment, engaged in further missionary endeavors, was re-imprisoned, and then martyred. But Luke simply stops with that first Roman imprisonment. And our letter takes place after that. Uh, I make another point in that first line, and that is that Paul's letter is written to Timothy and to the churches. We should not get the impression that Timothy is the sole recipient of Paul's letter. In fact, Timothy really is something of a conduit that Paul is using as a surrogate of sorts to address the uh, churches in Ephesus. Ephesus. Among other proofs of that is the very last thing that Paul says in this letter: uh, "Peace to you." The "you" there is plural, and of course it's plural because he's addressing not just Timothy but the churches as well. So we must keep that in mind as we l- read the letter. I say, following his release, Paul has uh, had come to Ephesus to confront false teachers who had infiltrated the churches and to further ground the believers in apostolic truth. So that's the occasion that prompted Paul's visit to Ephesus, to the churches there in Ephesus. He had heard the report that false teachers had uh, come into the assembly, and so he came to Ephesus to confront them and to ground the believers further in apostolic truth. And I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that Paul mentions all of this because he had warned the uh, elders from the churches of Ephesus uh, I believe it's Acts 20 that such false teachers would in fact arise and try to uh, harm the flock their respective flocks two after a short visit he left for Macedonia to provide critical help for the churches there hoping to return shortly we're a bit surprised as we read the opening verses of First Timothy that Paul has come to Ephesus because there is a grave danger, the threat of the false teachers, but shortly after his arrival, he leaves to go to the churches of Macedonia. And the question, of course, is why are you doing that, Paul? There's a great need here in Ephesus. Well, the explanation to that is that he had heard reports of similar issues in the churches of Macedonia felt compelled to go there to address those issues, leaving Timothy behind, anticipating Timothy would carry on what uh, he had begun there in Ephesus. But he was hoping to return shortly, anticipating a delay, and he mentions that in the letter. He writes to charge Timothy as his representative to continue to strengthen the churches and to counter the threat. So that informs us of the theme of 1 Timothy. We could we could identify the theme as Paul's charge to Timothy as his representative addressing the threat of false teachers and further grounding the believers in apostolic instruction. The threat of false teachers is real. I'm sorry, number three. A key issue Paul addresses is the qualification for the office of pastor. He uses the expression overseer, and we'll come back to that point. Office of pastor in the local church. The threat of false teachers is real, and pastors must be equipped to instruct and protect the congregation. As Paul's apostolic representative, Timothy Timothy was to ensure that those whom the churches were placing in the office were fully qualified. So we should not think that Timothy is himself placing pastors in these churches. We should think of Timothy as assisting the local churches in doing that. Perhaps our paradigm for that is Acts 6, when there was need for uh, individuals to care for the widows the apostles, instead of appointing those individuals themselves, instructed the congregation to do that, but gave them guidelines, offered them assistance. And we should understand that's what Timothy's role here is in Ephesus. Although ordained, Timothy was not functioning as a pastor in Ephesus. That's not, that is also an important point. We shouldn't think of Timothy as functioning that way. He is Paul's representative of, And this letter is the official document authorizing his functioning in that capacity. For Paul begins in 3.1 by describing both the desire for the office and something of the nature of the office. Paul uses the expression, in unpacking the nature, Paul uses the expression overseer and notes that it is a noble work. Then, based on the nature of the office, Paul lays out the qualifications that are necessary. Five, his discussion of the qualifications can be conveniently divided into the following five categories. Paul begins with the general or overall qualification. The the overseer must be above reproach. We looked at that in a previous chapel. That's the overall qualification. The overseer must be above reproach. And then he develops from that the character qualifications. That's all of the second part of verse 2 through verse 3. We've looked at those, again, in past chapels. Three, domestic or family qualifications, verses 4 and 5. That's where we are this morning. Four, maturity qualifications. That's verse 6. And finally, community qualifications. What kind of reputation must the overseer have with those outside the church. Paul ends there. Now, with all that in mind, let's jump to the second page, and we're going to pick it up with number nine on page two. The nature of the office is brought out by the title overseer and by the description of the office as a noble work. The title overseer or bishop refers to the responsibility of leading the congregation, exercising oversight. Furthermore, the title is used interchangeably in the New Testament with the title titles elder and pastor to describe the same position and office. So it's important for us to know that when Paul is describing the qualifications of an overseer, we should understand that term to refer to a pastor or to a shepherd. The New Testament uses those terms interchangeably to refer to the same office and same work. Ten. Finally, Paul declares that the office of overseer is a noble task. By noble task, Paul means the work of an overseer is praiseworthy. It involves the overseer investing his life In leading the local church, the significance of all of this is seeing that the local church is the very centerpiece of God's plan and program of redemption for the present age. There is no higher or more holy calling in all of life in this present age. Now with that in mind, we want to go to page 8 because that's where we are going to pick it up. And we're going to pick it up at the bottom of page 8, domestic qualifications. Now, um, in the past, I've treated this as something of an open forum rather than a traditional preaching. So forgive me for doing that. But by that I mean I, I want you to ask questions. And, in fact, you can ask a question at any point as we're going through this material. I will pause periodically and, in fact, invite your questions. But I am looking for your input as we're going through this. So feel free to give it. Domestic qualifications, verses 4 and 5, the requirements. That's verse 4. First, he must manage his own household well. Paul transitions in this verse from listing character qualifications for the overseer to listing family or domestic qualifications. Paul lists two domestic qualifications in this verse and then offers clarification and support in the following verse. Number two. Parallel with the previous qualifications, the first domestic qualification is stated in the form of a command. The overseer must manage his own household well. The expression manage means to exercise leadership, or to serve as the head of someone or something 3 that which the overseer is to manage is his own household the term household refers to the members of a family who are living together with the qualifier own paul makes clear that the household the overseer is to manage is the one that belongs to him as husband and father the way in which he is to manage his own household is expressed by the term well. The term refers to that which meets a high standard or that which is done in a right way. From the larger context, a household that is managed well is one whose relationships and responsibilities honor God and His Word. So that's my effort to unpack what Paul means Manages, man, he must manage his own household well. Well, what does he mean by that? What does managing a household well look like? And from the following context and the larger context, I think what Paul means by that, what I've said here at the end of verse, or number four rather, uh, the, a household that is managed well is one whose relationships, personal relationships and responsibilities of the individual members honor God and His Word. That's what I understand it means to manage one's household well. Five, what this means in terms of his family is that the overseer must love his wife and children and care for their spiritual and material needs. He must take leadership in doing that. He must take leadership and caring for their spiritual and material needs. He is to build the family as a team where each member fulfills their biblically mandated roles. You know, it's interesting that Paul takes time to go through these qualifications. And we might think, well, this qualification is rather intuitive, Paul. Why are are you addressing it? But I think... It's critically important because the demands of pastoral ministry are such that we can not intentionally but unintentionally neglect this all-important ministry that God has entrusted to us. We can be so engaged in giving oversight to the church that we forget to do that with our own family. And so I think that's why Paul is reminding us of this. Six In terms of finances, the overseer must pay his bills on time, take care of his property, and meet his other obligations in the community so as to gain respect the respect of others. In short, he must exercise leadership in the home in a way that honors Christ and the gospel. So again, if I can just uh, drive home this point, we must uh, take the time and give ourselves energy and resources to managing our, our own family, our own spouse, if we have children, our own children. Uh, we will see <laughs> that Paul's going to drive home the point, if we're not doing that well, we're not qualified to check, to pastor God's church. That makes it a rather important and critical responsibility. Keeping his, we're, I'm going to finish the other responsibility here, then I'll pause and see if you have questions. The second domestic qualification, keeping his children under control with all dignity, is really a continuation of the previous qualification, that of the overseer managing his own household well. As such, the second qualification helps clarify the initial qualification. In connection with the previous directive, the expression keeping takes on the force of a command. Some... Several of the modern translations, in fact, translated as a command, and I think properly so. It means to establish and maintain a close and proper relationship with family members here of children. Keeping someone means to maintain a close and proper relationship with someone here of children. As discussed earlier, this qualification does not demand overseers have children, it only identifies what the responsibilities are if an overseer does have children. So an overseer is not disqualified if he does not have children. And this verse does not at all contradict that. It simply identifies the responsibilities the overseer must engage in if God has given him children. Three, the phrase that follows under control with all dignity explains what it means for an overseer to keep his children in a close and proper relationship. The expression under control refers to children who are submissive or compliant to their parents as those who have authority over them. The parallel requirement in Titus 1.6 states the qualification in the negative having children who are not rebellious. So Paul states it in the positive here, under control. He states it in the negative in Titus 1.6, not rebellious. So the one helps us understand the other. Although the phrase, with all respect, can refer to the overseer, several translations take it that way. The ESV, and so does the most recent NIV, the 2011. However, it is best taken as describing the kind of attitude the children are to have toward their parents. I would not normally include the NRSV in support, but three beats two, right? Three translations versus two translations. The children are to submit to their parents' authority in a way that honors their parents and the qualifier all simply underscores the extent to which the children must show respect toward their parents. Titus 1.6 has a slightly different qualification, but it fits in this context. Depending on how it is translated, the overseer's children must be either believing you have the translations that translate that way, that is saved Or they must be faithful. That is, obedient to their parents. The second translation is parallel with the qualification here. They must have children who are faithful and therefore is preferred. Parents can and should evangelize their children by rehearsing the gospel with them and praying for their salvation. At the same time, the parents cannot guarantee that their children will respond in saving faith to the gospel. So I think that rules out the translation that their children must be believing. And I take it as simply they must be faithful. That is a parallel thought to what Paul has just listed uh, under control with all respect. From the larger context, Paul has in view children who are not married and who are living in the house of the overseer. Children at any age are to honor their parents at all times. At the same time, adult children form their own household and are no long, longer under the authority of their parents. And therefore, my understanding is Paul's qualification here applies to children who are living in the home, not to, not to children who have grown up and now no longer are living in the home. So if let's just have a hypothetical here. If the overseer has adult children living outside the home and uh, they are rebellious, my understanding... From this passage in the larger context, that would not disqualify an elder from pastoring a church. Um, just a couple of thoughts, and I'll open it up for questions. Um, I'm going to guess I'm I'm speaking for most of us, if not all of us here, that we try to maintain a fine balance. Between rehearsing the gospel with our children and doing it in such a way that when they do respond, they're not responding because they want to please us, but they're responding because the Spirit of God is bringing them to a response. I think we all think about that, all of us who have children. How best to rehearse the gospel without putting any pressure on them to please us by responding to it. But I think there's a a second danger, and that is we're so concerned about their responding to the gospel to please us that we're reluctant to share the gospel with them. And I think that's an equally uh, problem to avoid. That's the other side of the that's the ditch on the other side if you please. So I I've got grandchildren and I I talk to my my own children about their children, my grandchildren, and I encourage them rehearse the gospel with your children. I plan to do that. I I want it to be something that I'm intentional about. I'm very purposeful about but I realize there's that danger in rehearsing the gospel that they might respond just to please me and I don't want them to do that. So I, I'm going to present it in such a way where I'm trying to avoid that. But I want them to hear the gospel. I want them to hear the gospel. And so I'm going to rehearse it for them and I was just throw that out as something that uh, you may think about as well. The second issue here that I want to just maybe make a application. But Paul Paul's point here, and he's going to make it very clear in what follows, verse five, is that if we do have children living in our home, and they are rebellious, according what to what Paul has written here, if they're rebellious, if they are rebellious, then as we will see in what in verse five, that means you and I are disqualified from serving as a pastor. I, I, have, I, have, I have had that thought in the back of my mind while my, my sons were growing up. I, I knew that they could play a critical role in helping or hindering my ministry, a critical role. And I wanted them to be aware of that without putting undue burden upon them or uh, undo guilt. So I try to communicate that truth to my sons. You have the ability to help or to hinder my ministry. I just want you to think about that, and I want to uh, you encourage you to live in such a way that you help it rather than hinder it. But I, I did not want them to be unduly burdened, where every word out of their mouth or every step they take, they were in in abject fear of destroying their dad and mother's ministry. So that's another uh, responsibility that we have, that we need God's wisdom, how best to communicate that without miscommunicating it. Uh, I don't know how to gauge my own success. I guess you'll have to ask my sons on that. But those are two issues I thought I would raise in light of this passage. Now let me pause it here before we get to verse 5 and see if you have questions or comments.
1: Right, I'm thinking of a teenage son who's possibly in high school, soon to graduate, a few years, something like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A man will be disqualified from ministry because his son is rebelling, even though he's trying to faithfully parent.
0: That's my understanding. That would be my understanding, Duane. That is tough, isn't it? And therefore, I guess we would want to counsel all those in in ministry who have young children start this process at the very outset so that you develop that kind of relationship that when they become teenagers, and that's the danger. uh, Time in the life of our children, isn't it? Um, All of the influences upon them at that point, peer pressure uh, and godly world and whatever, hopefully we have shepherded their hearts and lives from, from the outset up to that point, where we have uh, some uh, ground and leverage to continue to shepherd them and hopefully see them not rebel. Mm. But my understanding is that if they're rebelling and they're living in the home, okay. that is a disqualifying factor. We'll come back to that at, 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 at verse 5 here. But that's my understanding. Duane. Did you have a follow-up question? That's my understanding. I, I, I know one of our graduates, for example, who stepped out of the ministry because he had a rebellious teenage son. And he's now starting to re-engage in ministry because that son is no longer living at home. And I, my understanding is that that fits with what Paul is saying here. Back here, Nathan. Yeah, in other words, one act of disobedience doesn't violate uh, what Paul is requiring of the overseer. But a habit and pattern of disobedience, open, open, uh, flagrant, if you please, disobedience, that's rebellious, and that qualifies, or disqualifies. Does that help, Nathan? Yeah, I All right. That, no, that was very helpful. Thank you. Do you have a follow-up? All right. Alex. I do because Paul doesn't seem to equivocate. Um, he seems to say, state it in a way that it's a blanket uh, requirement. And therefore, my understanding, if you have, let's just hypothetically, you have four children, one's rebellious, you have a rebellious child that disqualifies you.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um, He talks about household here and therefore all those under the household whether natural born children adopted perhaps even domestics, whatever under the household he's responsible if there's rebellion he needs to address it if it's not addressed that can be disqualifying I tell you what, can we hold these I want to get through this next verse or this, this series will be interminable. And I won't be invited back. So let's go on to verse 5. Um, the support, number one. Paul transitions here from listing the domestic qualifications to providing clarification and support. He begins by picking up the initial qualification from the previous verse, but states it in the form of a negative condition. Quote, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household... The condition, if someone does not know how to do something, describes someone who lacks the knowledge and ability to accomplish some task. And specifically, what this person does not know how to do is, quote, to manage his own household. Thus, the condition depicts someone who fails to fulfill the initial domestic qualification for an overseer, as spelled out in the previous verse. Having identified the condition, Paul then states the conclusion in the form of question. Quote, How will he care for God's church? The combination care for God's church means to provide oversight for God's church. The expression care for is synonymous with the expression manage in the previous verse. Furthermore, God's church refers to a local body of believers who share a common set of beliefs, who regularly meet at a set time and place for worship that includes preaching the word and observing the ordinances, and that which belongs to God as the ultimate author and founder of the church. Paul's question really makes an assertion, and the assertion is found in the answer intended by the question. It's a rhetorical question. The question, how will he care for God's church, intends the answer, he is not able to care for God's church. Thus, Paul's assertion goes from the lesser principle to the greater. If someone is not able to manage his own household, the lesser, then he is not qualified to oversee the church of God, the greater. And by stating it this way, Paul identifies the initial domestic qualification as critical. He must manage his own household well, or he's not qualified to serve as an overseer. Now, my last point before I ask for questions is a bit controversial. So... Finally, Paul's discussion raises the question about the plurality of overseers or elders in the local church. Recognizing there is a debate among Baptists on this issue. That's my my way of saying good men disagree. Paul's analogy between the overseer managing the church and his managing his old household, his own household, appears to break down if there is more than one person in charge. Let me explain. Number seven. In other words, there is only one head of a household. And the implication with Paul's analogy is that there is only one leader or overseer of the church. This does not rule out a plurality of elders serving in a local church as long as there is a senior pastor or leader. Assuming this is the case... Paul has the senior pastor in view with his analogy. Now, with that firebomb, I saw two hands going up here. I, Josh, you had a question? Uh,
1: yeah, I had a question. Um, in, in the previous section here, who determines whether a pastor is unqualified or not? Um, so if you have a pastor of a small
0: church in the country, and his son is rebellious, That's a good question. I wish Solomon were here to help me, but uh, here's my answer. Uh, Hopefully the pastor would initiate uh, the process by which, having dealt with that rebellious child, he submits his resignation uh, to the church, recognizing, according to what Paul has written here, verse 5 particularly, he's no longer qualified. And if he feels that way, he's convinced of that, then in a sense, regardless of what the church responds, he's doing what his conscience is dictating to him. If he fails to recognize it and the church recognizes it, then they have an obligation to go to him and say, we're sorry, but uh, we as a body of believers in this local church see your son as rebellious, and we're asking you to step down until which time he is no longer rebellious or no longer in your home. And so that's how, that's how I'd answer your question. Do you have a follow-up? Kind of interested how Solomon would have answered that one. I would say it's both and, but the, Paul's focus is on the first. Yeah, The elder has demonstrated his inability to manage his own household, and for that reason, he is not qualified to manage, to oversee the church. Follow-up question? All right. Any others?
1: Dr. Miller. Mm-hmm.
0: because he actually fits then the uh, requirement that Paul lays down here in terms of his household. Um, so that's I base it on that. Uh, the, that rebellious child is no longer in the household uh, and those that are in the household are meeting the qualification. He meets the qualification as I see it. Uh, I suspect others may, not, may demure on that, but that, as I see Paul's requirement, I think he meets that requirement. Your, your point's very well taken. All right. Any others? All right, I think we're out of time, so let's close in prayer. Father, uh, we are humbled, each one of us, that you have counted us faithful and placed us in the ministry we ourselves see how frail we are and how utterly depend, dependent we are on you. We uh, pray for grace and wisdom and strength, Father, uh, to be the kind of uh, servants that would honor Christ and to have the kind of marriages that would exalt Christ and the gospel. And we uh, pray for wisdom as we reflect on these qualifications and reflect on our own lives and families. And uh, we pray for grace and strength, Father, to fulfill these. We want to be servants of the Most High that uh, honor Christ and the gospel and please you in every way. And uh, so we ask that you would continue to use this passage to remind us of our responsibilities. And continue to give us the grace we need to fulfill to fulfill them and to please you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.